the delight that we're able to feel to come together this evening is certainly that which is seen in the enthusiasm of the singing, the powerful message involved in the prayer, the consideration of lovely and joyful fellowship one with another, the smiles that we're able to wear that perhaps ring to a close the year 2008, at least on, on the Sundays. For in fact, as we noted this morning, it is the 52nd and final Sunday of 2008, and we devoted a lesson this morning that had a two-part title, Review on the one hand and Expectation on the other. And as we looked at the expectation portion of that lesson, we did close it by affirming that tonight we would continue that series of ideas by perhaps looking more carefully and in a bit more detail at some of those things that might be put into my life and yours to aid us in accomplishing that goal of the statement of 2 Peter 3, verse 18. That, in fact, was a springboard text that prompted us near the close of that lesson, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be glory both now and forever. Amen. In our effort and in our intent to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it would entirely be fair to ask, what would be some practical specifics that I could employ, and you as well, that would aid us to move toward that goal, to inch somewhat nearer the matter of perfection as seen in the notion of completeness, as affirmed in Matthew 5.48. Tonight's lesson is an intent to fill in some of those gaps by looking at just a few ideas, four of them in particular, that we can each utilize and things that we can do, thankfully. They're not impossible but things that you and I can utilize to draw us nearer unto God as we march towards spiritual perfection and spiritual completeness. As we look at them, may I encourage you to begin that series of studies then with the first element in that series tonight, namely, an issue that relates to determination. I think it's a bit interesting as one comes to consider some of the lessons like this one to see how it mirrors so closely some of what we recognize even in our physical daily walks of life. I'm sure each of us are apprised of the fact that this time of the year seems to be a perfect opportunity to take a bit of reflection upon one's life and to have the idea of making changes. I think most individuals would appreciate that there are ways that they could be better individuals things that they could do in a different way to be a better person in one way or another. And quite often as one year closes and the calendar changes to another, they may make a resolution with regard to the accomplishment of some change, the goal of which is to make them a better individual. That change might involve any number of things. To be a more patient person, to be a friendlier individual, to be a type person who in fact would be one who lives in a more healthy way. Maybe they have a determination or an intent to eat more healthily or to lose some body mass or to quit smoking or any number of other things. This, after all, is seemingly that cherished time of year to make resolutions, isn't it? With 2009 beginning, many will make some resolution with regard to some of these features of the body. For others, it may be to be a better husband or a better father. For perhaps someone else, well, I intend to be a better wife or a better mother. In any way that one looks at all of them, it is an exceedingly fair statement of fact to say that it will not happen 
unless there is a rather fair amount of determination behind it. Just because the calendar changes from December 31, 2008 to January 1, 2009 doesn't mean that these things will happen magically. It doesn't mean they'll happen overnight. It doesn't mean that they will just automatically be easy to do. It does require determination to accomplish any of them. I wonder if there might be lessons in that with regard to spiritual changes as well. You and I have become, by virtue of our life, to have habits and tendencies, even in spiritual matters. If those are to change, it will require determination. Isn't that true? Isn't it the case that changes, even spiritually, will not happen automatically, and they won't happen overnight? It will take the determination and the devotion over years, at least over months, to make any concerted, permanent changes in those matters. And in fact, the Scriptures help us see the idea in exactly that way. I've listed some passages near the bottom of that screen. Our Savior on one occasion in Luke 9 verse 23 made this statement. He said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If we consider the statements involved in the Savior's affirmation, he said, If any man will come after me, which is the very thing of spiritual growth, to draw near to Jesus, to in fact live a life that would be closer to the type of life that he lived. Thus, to come to him is exactly what we desire. And yet the Lord said, If any man will come after me, let him first deny himself. There is and must be the realization that Christ must be at the top priority. The issue of determination will in fact revolve around that very idea. Is it not still true in Colossians 2 verse 3 that in Him, in Christ, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? In fact, seven verses later in Colossians 2 verse 10, you're complete in Him. If we thus have a desire and wish to work toward being complete, it must happen in Christ, and hence determination must be the order of the day. In fact, we can certainly appreciate the fact that that determination is something that will be greatly needed, for if it's not, we will soon find ourselves lapsing back into the same habits that we had in 2008, and we will in fact be no real distance closer to where we desire to be ultimately in the matter of spiritual growth. Even the inspired apostle, Paul, he had feelings not unlike these, for in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27, the last four verses of that chapter, even Paul said that they which run in a race run all. There is a race that Paul said an athlete strives to run. Does that not lead us to then ask a rather pertinent and needful question? We perhaps each are aware of the determination involved in a skilled athlete. That person did not become a top-notch athlete or skilled at that particular athletic activity overnight. It took months of perhaps years of healthy eating and practice and training. Is it not the same in spiritual matters? If we are to grow spiritually, it too will require determination. Day-by-day day devotion with eyes fixed upon the goal that lay ahead. And to that extent, Paul said, 
that he himself, not as uncertainly do I beat the air, but yet I buffet my body, he said in verse 27 of that same text, so that when I preach to others, I myself shall not be a castaway. He knew that even himself required day-by-day day activity and pursuit of the nature of godliness, for he himself could in fact be called a castaway if he too launched aside and lost the focus on the goal ahead. There is a great goal that we, of course, are seeking too. It's that magical, wonderful place that can well be called the glorious abode of the soul, heaven itself. We must approach it with determination. Thus, just as we learned this morning, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will involve, first of all, determination as 2009 approaches us. We will look more carefully in the next three ideas about some specifics concerning where that determination may lead us. But may we first notice that determination will be a required thing if change is to be a reality. But then, in the second place, might we also appreciate the place that the Bible must hold if these changes are to be of the form and of the variety that would be desired. We've already learned perhaps this evening and reminded ourselves of the glorious nature of Christ as our example. And yet wasn't it he who said in John 12 verse 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. There is an occasion then to appreciate that the very wonderful Word of God, the precious statutes and testimonies contained therein, shall be the very matter that judges us. And hence, we in terms of growing spiritually should desire to make our life closer to the pattern set forth in this inspired book. The place of the Bible thus must be supreme. There may be any number of various self-help books and one certainly should appreciate that there may be an element of good within them. But in terms of spiritual improvement, in terms of drawing nearer unto God, there literally is no substitute for time with the sacred text, time spent with the holy volume, time invested and devoted to those marvelous and powerful precepts contained in the Word of God. It certainly would be fair to say but the Bible does remind us of that truth on many occasions. Wasn't it that wonderful Apostle Paul who to his son in the faith Timothy said in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Timothy, in the effort to present yourself approved unto God, and isn't that what we wish as well? To stand approved before the great eyes of El Shaddai, the wonderful, all-sufficient God of heaven. Is it not the case that we too then must follow that same dictate, that same order? Thus he said, study. The Greek word means to give diligence. That means with investment of determination and effort, give diligence, Timothy, that you may stand approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. We thus must involve ourselves with the word of truth. And to do so with a desiring spirit of again approaching that disposition of being closer unto God, nearer unto Jesus, a life of greater holiness, piousness, and godliness. We have perhaps been able to see before in the study this morning the necessity and the integral part that faith in fact plays. 
Hebrews 11.6 still reminds us, But without faith it's impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It stands to reason then that if faith is essential, and it is according to the text we've just studied, then an increase in our faith, per the request of the apostles in Luke 17.7, 7, Lord, increase our faith. We find how that's accomplished in Romans 10.17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. There is no substitute then for an involvement with a sacred text. Time devoted to its reading, to its study. I might ask you to appreciate, in fact, an explicit passage in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2, that exactly address the very matter before us. He said, Wherefore laying aside all malice, and all guile, and all hypocrisies, and envies, and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. Let's revisit the latter part of verse 2. In what should one involve oneself in order to grow thereby? He has just explained it. Notice, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, to what end, Peter, that ye may grow thereby? If we thus have an intent and a desire to grow spiritually, it must be by desiring and availing oneself of the wonderful statements in the sacred text. God's holy and divine will. I've listed some passages even from the Old Testament that remind us of the place of God's Word. It's not that just in the Christian age the Word of God is needful and necessary for spiritual growth. It was also that way in the Old Testament. Of course, they didn't have the 27 books of the New Testament that we have. But listen to just a few excerpted passages from the longest chapter in the Old Testament, the 119th Psalm. And listen to the role that the Word of God plays in these interesting verses. Beginning in verse 2 of that chapter, the inspired writer says, Blessed are they that keep His testimonies, and that seek Him with the whole heart. There's determination. To seek God with the whole heart, in what way? To pursue His testimonies. Nine verses later, in verse 11 of that same chapter, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. In an effort thus to be more complete in the eyes of God, certainly one would wish to sin less and less. And yet to accomplish that, the writer there said that one needs to hide the Word of God in his heart and use it as a guiding thought and a guiding reality in the various activities of the day. In verses 15 and 16, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. There are many things in life that you and I may be apt to forget. Some of them, in fact, are not really all that important. If we forget one thing or another, it may not come back to be of great harm. But the psalmist said, I'll never forget thy word. Verse 23 of that same chapter can we not see the interesting statement that it in the next verse sets before us? The powerful reality of this. Thy testimonies are my delight and my counselors. Where do we seek then to find advice, counsel, guidance, and direction? Is it within the precious heart of the Word of God? In verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of thy precepts or the way of thy ways and I shall keep it unto the end. 
there should be determination not to set aside the Word of God, to pursue it and to follow it. Verse 44 even says, continually forever and ever. Verse 72, the law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. That kind of text reminds us that the things the world has to offer pale in comparison to the riches and treasures set forth in the Word of God. In verse number 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Verse number 93, again reminding us that I'll never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. What is it that spiritually makes you and me alive? And that's what the word quicken means, to make alive. That which once was dead is now such that it's alive. Spiritually in sin, one is dead. But yet, God's precepts and the pursuit of them, the implementation of them will make us alive. Verse number 97 thus perhaps summarizes some of these words in these ways. He said, Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Beginning in verse 103, How sweet are thy words to my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Notice thus two verses later, we thus read, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Verse number 129 and 130 of that same chapter, we're reminded yet again of the greatness of God's testimonies. Thy testimonies are wonderful. Therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy word giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. Verse 140, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. We should have a strong feeling of emotion. Love, if you please, with regard to the sacred word of God. Perhaps one verse 174, near the close of that chapter, reminds us that contained in these words is the very message of salvation. And we should long for it. All of that simply reminds us that the Bible has a supreme place to play if we are to grow spiritually. Time must be spent with the sacred text. Certainly at this point, things would be different from one person to the other. But each of us, if at all possible, needs to spend a part of each day with the Bible. Some may perhaps have a schedule that will allow you to read four or five chapters a day, and if so, that's wonderful. For others, may each of us at least try to read one chapter a day and to appreciate that if we were to do that, by the end of the year we will have read 365 chapters of the Word of God and would have spent time thinking about it, pondering it, allowing it to, in fact, position itself in our life, to ferment and permeate the very nature of our being and to think upon things divine and holy and the wonderful Word of God. Maybe as well, favorite verses or favorite passages we could perhaps devote some time to try to memorize some of them because they're so meaningful to us. And after all, if we can memorize words of songs that come on the radio and words of lyrics and anthems, can we not spend some time to memorize at least a little bit of God's Word and to know where it's found? Maybe the plan of salvation to know where those verses are so that we can share that with somebody else. Or what is it that constitutes acceptable worship? Can we use book, chapter, and verse to help explain to somebody where those things are? That'd be a wonderful idea for us to have in mind as a goal, perhaps for the year 2009. 
But as we've looked so far at the nature of determination and the nature of the sacred text in our spiritual growth, let's look also at a third thing that will be a necessary accompaniment to the accomplishment of our goal, and that is prayer. We should understand, as we've noted earlier tonight, that to change something, given the habits, the propensities, the tendencies in life, to change it in a permanent way is not easy. That will not happen overnight. We need the strength of someone greater than us to help make sure that's accomplished in the smoothest and most effective way. We need to pray. If it was the case that Jesus, the perfect, sinless, guileless Son of God, was a man given to prayer, how much more do you and I need it? How much more often should we be those who, in fact, bow our heads and turn our attention to, to the activity of prayer? I've listed some thoughts. I hope they'll be of help to us. Prayer accomplishes such a wonderful thing. First of all, might we note, it allows us to petition the greatest being of all, God. He is not limited by the things of man. He is infinite in knowledge, infinite in power, infinite in love and mercy and grace. Thus, when we compare that to the pathetic nature of the human family, how wrong we can be, how limited we are, how short our foresight is. Is it any wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 146, verse 3, verse 3, Put not thy trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom is no help. How much help is there, their psalmist? None. In the final analysis with regard to heaven being in the balance, there is no help in man. The help is found in the nature of one greater than we. Is it any wonder then in Job 42, 2, in the final analysis of that very touching and dramatic book, there we read, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Job said that concerning God. Job understood well that there was no limit to what God could accomplish, no limit to the great power that was at his disposal. Thus, it is no wonder at all that we read in James 5.16, thus about how prayer enters into this picture. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer is wonderful, and it's wonderfully powerful. Thus, if we expect and hope to grow spiritually, may we pray for God's assistance to bring that about. May we pray that His powerful force will be with us, that we will in fact be effective and effectual in that spiritual growth. Many things could be said in regard to that idea, not the least of which would be this promise of 1 John 3, verse 22. As we remember that promise there made, we, we read this, And whatsoever we ask of Him, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments, and we do those things that are pleasing in His sight. That verse should continue to be a remarkable and amazing promise to us. Whatever we ask, we receive of Him when we keep His commandments because we do those things pleasing in His sight. If it thus is our determined goal to grow spiritually, that verse helps us see God will ensure that that will happen if we are devoted to His cause and seek to follow His ways and implement the teachings of His Word in our lives. 
that thus means that what we merely hope for is not a faint wish that may or may not happen. God will bring that to pass if we are, in fact, devoted to that end. That kind of idea should be a great comfort as well as a tremendous incentive to us. Maybe Peter would be a good example here. In Matthew, the 14th chapter, we will recall that the Lord came in the fourth watch of the night walking on water. The sea at that point was tempestuous. And Peter, of course, and the others were greatly frightened and afraid when they saw what looked like an apparition or a spirit walking on the water. The Lord proceeded to attempt to calm their fears. He said, Be not afraid, is it, I? it, it is I. At that point, Peter, in response, said, Lord, if it be thou, beseech that I walk to thee on water. Peter stepped out of that boat and walked on water. He had a faith prompted by the very reality of the Savior that permitted him to do what otherwise could not be done. And when he walked on that water, it's only when he took his eyes off the Lord, when he proceeded to see the tempestuous water and the boisterous wind, that he proceeded to sink in the water. When we keep our eyes fixed upon the Savior, ever ready to approach God of heaven in prayer and beseech His assistance in our matter of spiritual growth, we, like Peter, will be able to walk and do those things that will truly be what we would have thought would be very difficult, if not impossible. Perhaps as we close that particular sheet, can we not be reminded that power really, prayer is really a transforming activity? For it switches the perspective and the focus from ourselves onto one greater than we, onto God Himself. And that should help us ever be reminded that with God at our side, we read in Romans 8.31 that if God be for us, who can be against us? You see, you and I and God are a majority. In fact, God with anyone is a majority, isn't He? Can we not then see that He as a powerful presence in our life, though we may be beset with things about us that are less than pleasant, and may we be beset with things that are in fact very hard, with God at our side, our matter of approaching spiritual growth will still take place. We perhaps are ready to approach our fourth and final brief idea or lesson this evening. It is the appreciation of what no doubt is a matter of reality. It would be fair, in fact, to say that, as we've noted earlier, this desire to grow spiritually will not merely happen just because we want it to. It must have determination. But even with determination, we should, of course, be prepared to see that there will be frustration, and there will be opposition. There will be resistance, and the reason for it is simple. It's because of Satan himself. Satan will ensure that the road to spiritual growth is bumpy. He will ensure that it is in fact beset by detours and blind curves and other things that will only tend to hamper, to resist, to hinder, and to inhibit. That's after all what he wishes most of all. He doesn't want you or me to go to heaven. He doesn't want you or me to impact others for God. He doesn't want you and me to make a dramatic change for greater spirituality. He would like nothing more than for us to slip into greater unrighteousness. Thus, we might well see that this is very much like those who have a desire to make resolutions in other ways in life. 
That person who wants to make a change to live more healthily, for example, how long will it be into the new year before that person finds himself going a day or two without exercising? Or going a day or two and not eating as healthily as he or she might wish? We all know that that kind of a day would soon happen. In fact, no doubt before January closes that will have happened. The point is the person can't give up. Just because a day is spent not doing that which would have been ideal, you can't give up completely on the goal. And the same is true spiritually. If I miss a day not reading the Bible, or if I miss a day and not having prayed the way I should have, I can't just throw up my hands, really, and say, well, the rest of the year is a loss. That's the very day next to simply say, well, I need to try again. Learn a lesson from what happened yesterday. Improve my schedule, perhaps, and carve out time to pray or to read the Bible or to do something else that God and His Word has encouraged and taught me to do. We can't give up. Does not the Bible encourage us over and over to not be those who, in fact, throw up our hands, give up on the Christian life and spirituality, and simply try to do no more? We have to continue onward. There will be those mistakes we make. That's simply going to be life. For if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.8 we must appreciate that when those mistakes are made, we should draw near unto God, beseech His forgiveness. If we've wronged others, repent and strive to make it right with them and move on to greater perfection tomorrow. Life upward in that way is a challenging idea, but isn't it bright? It's not a downhill slide. It's moving ever closer to the brightness of God's glory. The children of Israel were admonished on many occasions in that same way, weren't they? As they drew nearer to the promised land, imagine their place. They were here encamped on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Right across that river was the land of Canaan. That promised land flowing with milk and honey. A land that God had promised them decades earlier. All they had to do was have the courage, the determination, and the fortitude to cross that river, to follow God's commandments, to conquer that land, and it would be theirs. They couldn't simply rest on the laurels thus of thinking they'd come close enough. They had not yet conquered it. When they entered that land, there would be days that they faltered from God's will. It happened at Ai, didn't it? Remember that though they'd conquered Jericho, the first major obstacle in that place, the very next one they failed miserably. Thirty-six Israelites lost their life in battle against a little old bitty town. However, what did they do? Joshua fell prostrate before God and petitioned and asked, What's the problem? In Joshua chapter 6, we suddenly learned a lesson. God said, Joshua, get up and purge sin from the camp. Joshua did it. They found Achan had been the culprit, the one who had in fact done what was not to be done. They purged it from the camp and then they went on their way and conquered the land of Canaan. You see, when we falter too, it's not the time to give up completely. It's the time to reflect on what prompted the mistake and to learn the lesson to not allow that to happen again and to move onward and to move forward and to move upward. Frustrating days will occur. Things will happen that will make it difficult, but we must understand that's a part of the life in Christ, isn't it? 
Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That famous statement of 2 Peter 3, verse 12. The realization of that statement and that which follows this fourth statement in our lesson tonight maybe leads us to use Peter one more time as an example. In many ways, we each, I'm sure, can identify with Peter. There was an occasion in Luke 22, verse 31. This was the very night prior to our Lord's crucifixion. It was the night that he was arrested in Gethsemane. It was the night that he had a very difficult and sleepless night standing trial before Annas and Caiaphas and even the Sanhedrin council. However, one time that night, we remember before the greatness of those episodes began, Jesus told something to Peter. He said, Peter, Satan hath desired to have thee to sift thee as wheat. But then Jesus said, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. The Lord uttered a prayer apparently for Peter that his faith would be strong enough and that he would not fail. In response to that statement, Peter said, Lord, I'll never in fact do anything other than what they would have me to do. If I may but paraphrase verse 33 of that chapter. He said, even if it requires prison or death, I will never forsake thee. Twenty-eight verses later, he had denied Jesus three times. Twenty-eight verses later. Could Peter see that coming? When he made that statement to the Lord that he'd never forsake him, he no doubt felt that his aggressive style, the powerfulness of his faith, would never allow him to sidestep the Savior or to deny him. Circumstances changed that night. Not many hours later, he had denied him three times. When Jesus then looked at him from a distance, Peter went, uh, Peter went out and wept bitterly, the text says. Peter made a mistake. Did he give up his hands and quit? No, he didn't. In fact, remember Jesus had prayed that his faith wouldn't fail, but rather that when he returned, he would strengthen the brethren. That he did. For wasn't it he who preached the first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2? Wasn't it he who preached to Cornelius and the first Gentile families in Acts chapter 10? Wasn't it he who wrote two books in the New Testament? That same Peter who faltered and failed on that occasion of denial was the same Peter who, with reinvigorated faith, came back to the realize the greatness of God's power and was a strong force in the first century church. Tonight, these four lessons can perhaps be quickly summarized in words like this. Very briefly, as we then look forward to 2009, if it be the blessing and will of God, to grow spiritually, to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we have learned tonight that it shall require determination, that it will not be an overnight quick thing that will just happen in some kind of unusual way, the specifics of requiring, though, that its basis be the Word of God and that prayer must be a necessary accompaniment is only led, led us to see that the frustration that we shall no doubt feel, the opposition that we shall see is to be expected and knowing that expectation will allow us to be ready for it and to be prepared to not allow it to cause us to quit but rather to come back the next day stronger, better, more intent and focused upon the becoming complete in the eyes of God. This evening, it might be that there's one or more in the audience that would wish to make a public statement of your desire to be closer to Jesus. 
If you've never become a Christian, that involves, according to what Jesus said, the following things. You must believe Jesus to be the Son of God, and you must do that with all your heart. You must, in fact, repent of your sins. You must confess Jesus as the Son of God, and you must be baptized for the remission of those sins. Upon that moment, you will then be ready to walk hand in hand with Him through life. He will aid you to be stronger every day. He will help you as you rely upon His Word to learn more of it, to implement it in life, and to day by day be better able to share it with others. If you have begun that walk with Him, but you no longer are really, you have long since jettisoned any real reliance upon Him. You now rely upon yourself or perhaps someone else. You need to come back to Jesus. He holds out a loving hand to you and begs you to return. Remember that to that church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, he said, repent and do the first works. He wants you to come back home. If we could help you with prayer tonight toward that end, we'd be more than honored to be a part of that, to pray with you and for you, so that you too can start this new day, a day close to the side of Jesus. If either of those things would be a need in your life tonight, wouldn't you let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?